You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Push the button. Button's been pushed. Our last guest, I thought was a really, really good guest. All of our guests are good. But Doug just had something about him where I liked listening to him talk. And then Lisa got done with her run yesterday and said, I really liked Doug. Said he was really smart, really well-spoken, but he wasn't trying to be smart. He just talked talked to us rather than at us. Yeah. If that makes sense. Anyway, he said something in there. Of all the things he talked about, one of the pieces that jumped right out at me was when you asked him what pros do differently than everyone else. And he said one of the things is just they just never miss. It's not a it's not an option to them missing their run. Uh, temperature, weather, whatever, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. They're going to get it done. And you could kind of feel the eye roll like, well, yeah, they're professional runners. They don't have to work during the day. But the thing that that struck me wasn't the time of it. It was the temperature and the weather because we are right in that time where it's thunderstorm season in at least the Midwest. I think it seemed like it out in Palmerton. I drove Mm -hmm. through storms the whole way there and back. It's thunderstorm season. And it's also the heat of the summer everywhere. And you're, I'm sure, getting the same messages I'm getting, which is, hey, I just couldn't get it done. Not everyone, but I just, it was, the weather's looking so bad, I didn't get it done. Or this is coming up, I'm not going to be able to fit it in. And I thought, that's okay. But what Doug just said is the biggest difference between us and them is they don't miss. And we find reasons to miss. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't need to be brilliant to be true. And although a lot of things Doug said were brilliant, that is true. It's that same conversation we've had a few times about separating your emotions from the workout. Doesn't matter how I feel about things. Your feelings are null and void when it comes Mm -hmm. to that box needing to be checked that day. And where there's a will, there's a way. And even if you have to start work at 7 a.m., but you have a quality session that day, so you always push it till after work. So you have to be to work at 7 a.m. You possibly couldn't get up at 4 a.m. to get your quality session done. That would be ridiculous. And then you push your quality session off till after work at 5.30 p.m. and it's 98 degrees and you abandon ship a quarter of the way in it because it's too hot. Those are the things that the pros would do. Their alarm would go off at 4 a.m. They get the workout done before the heat of the day set in. It's an example of objectifying your workout. And I agree. I've gotten a few of those messages recently, too. I have a few athletes who refuse to get up early in the morning and work out. And then their 10 a.m. long run on Saturday goes crappy. And they wonder why they they cut it halfway through. So I'm glad you brought that up because I got a few I want to knock around a little bit, Bracken. Yeah, and I had a coaching consult with someone about a week ago. And I asked about their pre-race routine, and they basically blamed it on sleep as their reason for why they don't have a pre-race routine. Okay. Like, well, the the last one I did was an ultra. That started at 6 a.m. What am I going to do? Get up at 4? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe 3. Yeah, that's exactly what you're going to do. <laughs> but the way the person said it was just like, I mean, come on, man. What am I going to do? Get up at 4? Like, yes. Yes, you are. Because you put all this time, even if you didn't take your training seriously, you put all this time traveling to and paying for a hotel room. You didn't pay for the hotel room in order to get great sleep. You paid for the hotel room in order to be close to the venue so that you could go race. So get up and race. And you can't race without a pre-race routine. It was just one of those those where we were on totally different wavelengths. This, This individual thought like this would be a war crime to get up before 4 a.m. <laughs> I was thinking, you might want to set it for three. You know, John Albin doing his 20-minute tempo run on the cruise ship deck at 6 in the morning in the Bahamas because he's getting ready for the race at 7.30 a.m. or 9 a.m., whatever it was. Other people are like, oh, how long do I sleep in? And he's like, how early do I have to get up because I want to get in my workout before the workout? It's just different mentalities, but as soon as you accept the fact that it, they treat it like a job, and at your job, you don't walk in and say, you know what? I'm feeling a bit emotional today. I don't think I can get those TPS reports to you. Now, your feelings matter in life. 
but not at work. Mm-hmm. They don't matter then. You just still have to get your stuff done. Like, we validate your feelings. You are validated in that. But they're not a, like a, a hall pass to not get your, your work done. And if you treat your running like your work, then now your feelings don't matter for running either. So kind of kind of a, a mini rant, but I think it's important to hear at this time of year. Some people I think are going to look at me differently after I say this, but I had a conversation with a client. <laughs> Whenever you have to preface something like that, I always think, okay, here we go. I had, I had a client a ways back who, you know, didn't get their workouts in because one of their best friends died past. It was a, uh, a drawn out, mm-hmm. a drawn out process, emotionally wearing this client was there for the friend, part of the caretaking process as it all came to an end and it passed and, uh, they didn't get their workout or two in and, and, uh, somebody I can give the tough love conversation to. And I mean this with everything in my being, and I don't believe in putting bad juju out into the world and it happening. So I'm just going to say what I'm going to say. One of my parents could die and I'm still going for my run that day without question. I am so objectively removed to what's going on in my life that what, because something bad happens to me or somebody else, I'm going to not take care of myself and do what I need to do for me that day. Are you effing kidding me? And I don't mean to be dramatic with that example, but it's true. My shoes are going to go on regardless because I'm objectively taking care of myself no matter what excuse emotionally I would like to make. No way. That's like the last time I should skip my run. And so point being, more people need to, in my very short-sighted opinion, more people need to look at their workouts in the world that way because that's how you make progress over time. Every little anthill is in a mountain. Every mountain is in a mountain. We can climb mountains. One of those is working out even when it doesn't feel emotionally available to you. That's... That's what I was going to say. As you start saying that, it starts out feeling like, oh, I don't like where he's going with this. But as you finish up, you're like, absolutely. If you were on some sort of medication Mm -hmm. and you lost a loved one, you wouldn't stop taking the medication. Exactly. You would ensure that you take it so that you can control everything possible internally in order to remain at your most functioning self. It's not about my race is so important that loved ones don't matter. It's about I'm so important to me that I need to address me first in order to be there for everyone else. That's the takeaway. Preach, dude. I say that to people all the time. You are the most important person in your life more than your wife, kids, parents, friends, coworkers. It's not a narcissistic, selfish thing. It is a I make sure I'm taken care of so you can be taken care of the best way possible. And not a lot of people look at it that way, but I really do feel that way. It doesn't mean you're a shitty human. It means like you understand what you need to do to be the best version of yourself for others. And so we did not plan on starting this this way. How did you get us into this? Nope. (laughs) Sweet rabbit holes, Kirk. (laughs) Just hunting wabbits. Oh, okay. So our episode today has nothing to do with this. No. It's actually the opposite. This may seem like we're about to start a, like, light a fire under you or or be motivational. It's actually not. This is, this is a very technical episode. It's black and white. (laughs) This was all gray zone to start. Now we're going to move into black and white. Well, I do. As of now, I want to touch on the one heat thing and we need to discuss this, which we started with Dr. Doug Adams is, so I confirmed the heat. I'm, you know, I'm still planning on showing up at this 5k in a day and it's supposed to be 97. I just pulled up my email and we got a heat warning that they considered canceling the track event, but the show must go on. They're going to have extra ice towels and da 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 and make sure. So the event's still going going on and i'm wondering like how hot does it stay at nine o'clock if the, if the high temperature is 97 for the day with a million percent humidity what is it mm-hmm. do you have some calculator you're looking at what does the temperature do by like 9 p.m i'm just pulling up the weather by you what, what, where is this i just say minneapolis minneapolis I, i'm just curious like i know it starts to dip but i don't know how much and i don't think weather.com projects that far out and so I'm just curious. All right. It's tomorrow? No. Well, when people listen to this, it would be tomorrow. Oh, okay. T- tomorrow, tomorrow's high is 95 at 3 and 4 p.m. And by 9 p.m., it's 87. Okay. So you have an eight degree swing. 87. So it could be 89 when you race. Because, mm, yeah. So it's going to be warm. It's not going to dip that much cooler initially is what I'm gathering. It'll be eight high 80s. High 80s. Okay. So I've given this some thought, Kirk. You didn't know this. I was thinking about you on my run this weekend, but, which, by the way, uh, I didn't make this connection earlier, but was a thunderstorm run. 
and it was the best run I've had in a long time. It rained the entire time, and it was delightful. Mm. Sketchy on the descents, but a delightful run. But I was thinking about you after I finished up. I tempoed in the middle, and then I just shut it down and cruised in easy. And during the cruising, I was thinking about your race, and I was thinking that the exact same advice you gave me, which is I need to race a little bit more often in order to... You can't really race well in OCR if you don't race a lot, or at least a little bit so that you can be clean in and out of things and i think it's the same thing for this 5k you're so far removed for a race that i think you've got to do this one wednesday just to get it done you you might nail it you might go sub 15 or you might finish and think well thank goodness i got that one out of the way and i've got another one in like four to six weeks because i can do so much better now and i felt it and i can do a few workouts that will work on this one or two things that i felt so i think i think this is compulsory and I don't think the heat changes that. It might even amplify that. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. If it were another trail race, no big deal. You know what? I could just push it off for a month because I I get it right now. Correct. But a 5K on the track with 30 people in your heat in 85 to 90 degree weather, like I need to feel it out. How, how could I possibly go race my best, my first crack at this, let alone in those conditions? Maybe there's a margin of, of a chance, but you're right. It's exactly the same case as you showing up to Palmerton running the 3k. You got to show up, you got to feel it, you got to do it and you'll be better for it, whether it goes well or not. Yeah. And so I would have, um, a hydration vest or two with me in a cooler filled with ice, every pocket filled with ice. And I would warm up with that on. Hmm. And as that one started to melt or the heat the heat started to take over, I would swap it out for a fresh one. Whether I had ice cubes in it or I froze bottles, like filled bottles halfway, laid them sideways and froze them so they were flattish and could conform nice to your body. And then put those in there, both front pockets and back pockets. And I would have a poor man's cooling vest on for the entire warm up. What do you think about just showing up at the start line with the vest on, filled with ice cubes? Could you imagine somebody running a 5K on the track with a hydration vest? With a hydration bag. <laughs> yeah. Full of ice. Um, so I really, that that's exactly what I would do. I'd have a cold or frozen hat on during warm-up, and I'd switch off. I'd have a cooler with me as at my base camp, and I would warm up back and forth between that and just keep re-topping uh, off my, my cold factor throughout my entire warm-up. You know what I think about is those poor... And then let's move on to our episode, but those poor people. So this event is starts at... The first heat starts at 6.30 at, in the evening, and it starts with the, in quote slowest heat. If you're a 25-minute... That's going to be hot. Or 30 minute, 25 to 30-minute 5K or to... The next heats, anyways, these poor like uh, people running in rough, basically a hundred plus heat index. You know, we're lucky that we go last, the fastest heat under somewhat reasonable conditions. I just think of the suffering that's going to happen on a black track with the heat right. beating down, and the wind is supposed to be low, like zero miles an hour low. Five, from what I'm understanding, just bitches baking. Yeah. It's going to be just wretched. It's going to be very few PRs run, would be my guess. But um, nonetheless, the races must go on. Yeah, and tracks really hold on to heat. They're like a convection oven almost, not convection oven, but some sort of very hot surface. They even have this smell to them when it's hot. Yeah. It turn, just turns your stomach. But as soon as this, not having the sun out will be huge. The same temperature with no sun is is a huge change. So anyway, I, I, I was thinking about you on my run and I think you should do it. And I think you should take the warm up as cold as possible. All right. Advice heated. I will do that. I got my Yeti ready. Yeti ready. The Yeti is ready. Let's move on. Let's talk about our topic of the day. Yeah, he's ready. All right. Well, Dr. Doug was all about gait analysis. And anyone who's listened knows that we are not all in on changing stride. We're more like form optimization people. Um, But if there was ever a compelling argument made to get into stride analysis, I think his was it. The concept of the 3D stride analysis makes a lot of sense logically and scientifically. You're not relying on human error or human talent to get it right. It's just a very, very clear picture. Um, But that got us thinking, whether you do it or not is up to you. It seemed like, yeah, it's a good thing to do, but not all of us are going to do it. And some will, but until then, what do we do? Because we can all run better. And so this is going to be an episode about how do you actually go about running better without a lab to help you? We're not discrediting the lab. We think you probably should try it. But how do you do it without the lab in the meantime? Yeah, I learn from all of our guests in one way or another, whether it's a couch to ultra guy like my mm-hmm. buddy TJ or Ross Weimer, 
or it's a doctor who's conquering and helping the world and pro-level athletes. Like I learned something from everybody that I take away. I really do. With Doug Adams' interview, I feel like I was the student in the front row seat of a classroom in which the sensei was teaching me. Th- mm-hmm. Like I feel like you and I are pretty knowledgeable about a vast array of running topics, nuances in training. We have a lot of experience doing it ourselves. And then you meet somebody who levels up. You're like, oh, yeah, there are levels to everything, and that also includes knowledge about sport, mechanics, physiology, all of it. And that's how I felt after talking to Dr. Doug Adams on Friday. Uh, If you guys should, Bracken had um, editing problems, we'll call it, with the episode, so it got up just a little bit late. But go back and listen to it because – it's a great conversation. The dude is brilliant and he's easy and enjoyable to listen to. So I want to preface that, that don't overlook that episode. Second, mm-hmm. um, to your, what, what I found interesting is that he honed in on looking at somebody's form. I like the eye test from the side and I don't know what your philosophy is on it, but I always held more weight on looking at somebody from the back or from the front versus the side Yet he honed in, and maybe it's with this 3D yeah. method. That's why it's a very different uh, chart or uh, data. But what do you think about that? The looking at the form from the side versus head on or from the tail? I think what that, and I thought about that a lot. I, and I'll, I guess, piggyback off what you said first, which is we learn from everyone, but they all leave me with different levels of intrigue afterwards. Some people I move on within 15 or 20 minutes and don't think about it that often for a while and it'll just pop back into my mind here or there but he was one that i've thought about what he was saying for several days in a row mm. it just kind of stuck with me and i i always find that that's that's important i kind of like kind of like art i don't think i understand most art and i don't think most people do but i think if it makes you feel anything even if it's anger <laughs> That it's effective Hmm. doesn't necessarily make it good, but it means that it's good at what it was trying to do. And that's what I feel about these episodes. Sometimes the episodes that I think about the most aren't the ones I learn the most, Hmm. but his kind of checks both boxes. I I feel like we we did learn a bit there and I also can't stop thinking about it. But the the side piece I was thinking about a lot and, and all I can say about that, my only conclusion I can draw is that. He seems to prioritize overstriding as the first point of contact for how to fix a runner. That if you stop overstriding, you reduce your chances of bad impact force, collapsing, and other associated malfeasances on the running on the running spectrum. So mm-hmm. if the first thing and the only thing we know about you is if you're overstriding, you can only really tell that from the side. Yes. And so the interesting thing is I've thought about what he had to say a good bit recently too. And to just piggyback on what you said before you, you know, give us the clinic here is that I was watching YouTube videos. Well, I don't think I'm clinicking today. <laughs> there were there were a bunch of big track races that happened this last week, let's call it. Some people are still trying to hit marks to make the world standard who have qualified by placing top three in their country but haven't hit the world standard. So there's a lot of high-end racing. This next month is full of it. High-end, world-class track races. So anyways, there's a lot of stuff on YouTube to watch right now, and I watched 70 minutes of it on the assault bike this morning. Mm-hmm. And so I was thinking about what Dr. Doug said, looking at the side approach versus the front approach. And it's so I think that one thing is what it comes down to. The overstriding problem from the side can only be detected because I'm watching some of these athletes, great athletes, athletes that I will never run nearly as fast as. And when they showed the front shots of them running down the straightaway, you saw all sorts of different form. Arm carry, the way their head moved, the way their hips hit, the way their feet landed. Like even um, watching Jakob Ingebrigtsen, his left foot, kind of pigeon-toed a little his right foot straight like Jakob has a little bit of the same problem I have with my left foot he's not that beautiful if you look at his foot strike from the front and then you look at and then the camera pans to the side and shows them all running and almost every single one of them looks beautiful from the side the front is nearly irrelevant from the side you can understand the forward flow and trajectory of their stride from the front I could pick out flaws in everybody really but that those flaws seem much less significant than yeah. the flaws laterally. Does that make sense? So that just speaks to your point. Yeah. And musculature is harder to get in the way from the side. 
like a big beefy quad. Looks like it's doing a lot of weird movement from the front, but from the side, you're not catching that as much. Mm-hmm. And so you can see what your hip angle is, what your angle, your ankle flexibility is, and how your stride is hitting both in front of you or underneath you and then in the back, all from the side. So, yeah, I think we came to the same mm-hmm. spot on that. And so I want to preface all of this with one concept. Way back in the day, a very long time ago, we had the audience do this exercise where you try to squeeze all the muscles in your body as intensely of a flex as you can while keeping your fingers and your face totally relaxed. You're like hit your most muscular pose with your fingers limp and your face droopy. And then do the opposite. Squeeze your fingers and your face as intensely as possible and keep the whole rest of your body relaxed. It's very, very difficult to do that. Those are like, if, if we were controlled by a marionettist, those are those points of contact. Like Whatever they do with our face and hands, our body follows and vice versa. And so I want that concept in your mind to think about what really controls everything. And then we're going to think about that as where your feet hit the ground under your center mass. I think that's the whole thing with strides. Because as I was running this weekend, I was messing around with this a little bit. It's really hard to be super bow-legged or super knock-kneed if your feet land right underneath you. It's really hard to heel strike or way too prance on your toes if you land right underneath you. It's really hard to break downhill or um, or really overstride if your feet are underneath you. And and so it just seems to be like, if we could fix one thing early, it would be, how do we get our feet back to the ground? And everyone's going to have a lot of different drills or cues or whatever. But for me, that's like clenching my face and hands. If I'm doing that, I can't relax everything else. And if I'm not hitting underneath my body, getting my feet back so I'm not overstriding, I can't do any of the other things right either. But if I can do that one thing, it opens up the door to do all the other things correct as well. I like how you walked me into that. I wasn't sure where you're going. Now I see clearly. <laughs> I think then the first, so the first point to address with yourself is, am I overstriding or not? We talked about, you know, we've come back over time, like in and out of like 180 uh, strides per minute is the gold standard. And that should help correct your form. And maybe there's some truth to that for some of you people with a very low cadence, but for the most part, it has all that has to do with, and I'm not saying 180 strides per minute is not the golden standard for everybody, not even close. However, all that has to do with is trying to, for the most part, people are overstriding. And so by quickening your cadence, it's most likely going to help you strike underneath your center of mass instead of out in front, thus improving your efficiency. I don't think we get stuck on the 180 principle as much as we get stuck on the fact that all we're, all it's trying to do is help you strike under mass instead of in front of mass. That's the sole goal when people throw out, increase your cadence, right? Because if your cadence is faster, you can't extend as far out in front of your body, right? So I'm going to stop saying 180 because mm-hmm. I don't want that in people's heads. It's not what I'm trying to do today. So you got to figure out, are you mind over strider or not? So step one here is taking video from the side correct finding a can whether your iphone can do this or not or your android whatever you have bracken slowing for the sure it can. slowing the frame down enough for that is right at the contact point what dr doug adams says as we're breaking this all down is is your foot striking the ground in front of your knee joint or directly underneath your knee joint just from what i understand if that is that not correct? Yeah, if your toe is way out in front of your knee, you're overstriding. If your leg ever straightens out fully in front of you, you're overstriding. So I believe step one for you humans out there who are curious or working on this would be one, you got to start with the video. No questions asked before we get ahead of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Side set up in a stable position. Don't ask your seven-year-old to take it and he's wiggling all over the place. Bless his heart. But set up, take a video. Then go into slow motion and watch yourself through the gate. And the first thing you need to look at is where does your foot land in relation to your knee and your body? Where does it hit? Initial contact. Not fully land and push through. Where does it touch the ground first? That's what matters. Yeah. And most of us do overstride. Mm-hmm. I think the single most common running error. And and I think it's important, like you said, not to focus on cadence, but to focus on landing. Because cadence will improve your landing, but landing will also improve your cadence. So from that point of view, 
A lot of people would say, well, I'm going to get to the right cadence first if it's going to improve landing either way. But there's a difference between landing and running. Because if all we were trying to do was land underneath us quickly, you can do that very, very easily. But what you can't do is run fast and run well off that very, very easily. The biggest issue with the pose running or minimalist running, barefoot running, the 180 cadence, is that people become metronomes at one pretty crappy pace. Yeah, there. You see these people running in barefoot shoes and they're right underneath themselves and they're running so soft and light, but they are generating zero force. They cannot run faster with that. And so while you focus on the landing, that implies getting off the ground as well. And then getting off the ground means speed. So it's not that it's wrong to do it from the other end of the spectrum. It's that you may be using bad habits while working on good habits. And we want good habits from the start. And this is going to be one of the themes throughout this is that this is all about creating good habits. You don't want to just hit your 180 and say, I'm doing it. You want to do it well and then see what happens with cadence. Because if you're running well, your cadence solves itself. That's a very good point. Much like the sentiment Tyler German said about focusing on goal race pace. He's like, don't pick a goal. Time. Hit your workouts appropriately and the time will land where the time will land. And it's going to be the best you can possibly do. Mm -hmm. The same goes for cadence versus stride mechanics. Focus on your best stride and fixing that. Your cadence is just going to be what it's going to be and it's going to land where it should naturally. So I agree with that. Um, And a a couple notes about um, let's talk about like overstriding. Uh, One, what is overstriding? Why is overstriding bad? I guess let's just address that. One would be it is causing a revert or a uh, reverse effect where it's pushing back against you, uh, slowing down your forward momentum. It's a little bit of a, what we call a breaking effect, right? So that would make it inefficient mm-hmm. in that reason. It's actually just a slight pump of the brakes every time your feet hit the ground, whether you can feel it or not. And then two, the force is going to be exponentially higher the further you land out in front of your center of mass, pushing back, causing more stress all the way up the chain. That could be anything from ankles, knees, hips, even lower back, any of that. So overstriding does one of two things, which would be Slow you down slightly, just a quick brake tap every time your feet hit the ground, and then also creating more force back, which can make you more injury prone. So those are the two things that overshotting would potentially lead you to. Correct. And I loved his his example of using a skateboard or a scooter. How would you bring your foot down off the ground in order to propel you forward without braking? It would be it would have to land right under you and push backwards. If it lands in front of you at all, you're braking and you will feel that jarring like into your heel where it hits you. Energy has to go somewhere. And if you can't push it into the ground and use that to propel forward, it's just is going to travel right up your leg. And it has to leave your body somewhere and wherever it lands is where you take damage. Hmm. So getting your stride underneath you does, like you said, reduce impact and it also increases speed. Every time you break slightly by being in front of it, you're making your own job harder. You're making it more difficult because you're slowing slightly each time. And efficiency is just everything in running. And so you want the lowest possible ground contact time. You want your feet underneath you as well as possible and get them off the ground as efficiently while putting power into the ground as possible. And so none of that can happen with your foot in front of you. Yeah. So the goal of running efficiently is one to hopefully stay healthy, a little less injury prone, and then to run faster, right? And so to your sentiment about, sure, I can go shuffle at 10-minute pace and my feet are going to land right underneath my center of mass due to no force being created. Mm -hmm. So what you'd like to do when you're starting to look at this is you want to get into like goal or intended race type pacing and effort, and that's where you're going to have to analyze your stride first. Don't go and jog on the treadmill at at your slow, slower than recovery pace, or even maybe your recovery pace. Sure, that might be a good data point to have, but like we actually want to, the goal is to run fast and efficiently, at least for me it is, and most of you listening. So mm-hmm. when you're going to do some sort of gait analysis, if you're going to try to just analyze it on your own, you want to be running pace. You want to be running purposeful pace, not slogging, correct? I mean, I assume that's what you were getting at there? Yeah. Okay. So take us from here then. And if you're going to run slowly, it still has to be with purpose, not just cadence. So I think we build from the ground up. First of all, you can only get off the ground 
as fast as you can get balanced. Because if you're not balanced, you have to wait until you are balanced or you have to spring off with terrible power. It's really, really hard to jump forward with power if you're off balance. And running is kind of jumping forward with power in a way. And so you have to be able to hit the ground. And for most people, it's ankles and or hips. Most people's knees are strong enough. Not everyone's are, but for the most part, your ankle or your hip are going to have some sort of buckling, sagging, or issue getting balanced and powerful. And so that's what we have to build from the start. And that starts with drills. Now, drills are done with track teams all over the world, and they're not generally done by the everyday runner because I don't think people understand why we do drills. We don't do drills because we're on a team. We do drills because the team's goal is to be the fastest, most explosive runners possible. And the drills are designed to do the skill of getting on and off the ground. Because if you were trying to do skipping or power skipping, A skip, B skip, C skip, if you were never on a team, you won't know what those are, but just Google it. A skips, B skips, C skips, karaoke, Uh, bounding, any of those things, they are impossible to do well if you land in front of yourself. If your feet are out in front of you, you cannot skip forward. It's not possible. You can't do A, B, or C skips if you're heel striking. You can't do that. And so these drills are designed to get you used to landing firmly planted underneath yourself and getting off the ground fast because you can't fake that kind of drill, but you can fake running. And so you do these drills over and over and over before every single run so that you prime your system, teach it what it's going to do, and then you practice it while running. That's why it's done. And so it's not just for high school and college and pro teams. It's for everyone who wants to run well. So starting with those type of drills, and you can Google running drills and form drills, and you can just copy almost any of them because if they're designed to be like a mini plyometric, they're springing off the ground and you can't spring off the ground off your heels or off balance. And so it forces you to do it well. So I think that's right where you start. And I will include in there jump roping. I've said it on here before, but I think jump roping is one of the greatest ways to teach your feet, ankles, knees, hips to get balanced and get off the ground quickly without sagging to the side. Because if you watch yourself in the mirror, jump roping, you will see exactly where you're weak laterally. One side, when you jump right-footed and then left-footed and you're trying to land on the ball of your foot and get off the ground, one of your ankles or hips is going to sink. It is going to collapse. And just by doing that three to four times a week, you're going to fix it really, really quickly. But I think it starts, Kirk, with drill work. So just to clarify, you're saying that with the main goal being to not overstride and to have your foot land under your center of mass, drills will help with that specific task that's what we're getting at correct to fix the over teaching your body because you're not a lot the only way those are able to be performed properly is when you're landing under your center of mass and it is true even think of something like as as elementary as high knees or butt kicks imagine doing butt kicks but your feet are landing out in front of your center of mass you might snap your (laughs) knee in half like those little quick movements where we must land under center of mass um, that makes a lot of sense to me and once your body just inherently picks up that sort of tracking, it's more likely to follow suit in your run stride. I'm assuming that's what you're, that's what you're vouching for right here. Yeah, and so you do a few sets of those drills, and then you run a few strides, and it pairs it immediately to your brain and to your nervous system, and then you start your running workout. And they cost you almost nothing. If you've never done anything of those, you're going to be a little sore tired the first time around. But they cost you really nothing after that, but they're constant little like recentering practices. That's where you start. And then it really does work on the balance factor. And they expose you so quickly. Think about single leg hopping forward. If you're going to take three straight straight hops forward on the same leg, it's going to expose you by hop number two. As soon as you have to land and get off the ground again, wherever you're weak, it's going to cave. You're not going to hurt yourself most likely unless you land with your leg locked out, which please, please don't do. But it's going to expose right where you're losing energy out in your chain. And then that leads into step two, which is you fix this in the weight room. Whether you're jump roping or hopping or bounding, wherever you're collapsing, wherever you're off balance, that is your weak point. It either needs more mobility or more strength or both. And you can address that, like like Doug talked about, two to three weeks and you're, you're set there. So it starts with the drill and then you work on what the drill exposes in the weight room and then you practice it while running. 
It's like a, it's a three-step approach at a at a very basic skill level, but it's kind of a bulletproof approach because you move up in order of amplitude. Right. So so for talking preventing overstriding goes, I think the first question that I'm having is how do you know what the lowest hanging fruit is? Are you suggesting I'm more um conversing to you or with you on this would be like are drills mm-hmm. are drills necessarily like is that the go-to for everybody or are you saying that's one of your options and then strength work is also one of your options i guess where are we prioritizing in your opinion because i don't have a strong opinion on any of this like um so i guess in yours like where, where would you prioritize as a blanket statement that's what i'm getting at more than anything i think if you want to take the question out of it the can i fix this will this work won't it will i hurt myself with my new stride yeah Step one is drills and step two, which is kind of simultaneous because one comes right after the other, but during the same week is strengthening. It's like dry land training, strengthening what, whatever comes out in the drill. So for example, let's use that three hop scenario where I'm hopping three hops in a row on my right leg, trying to get my foot down right underneath me. And I can't keep doing it because I can't get off the ground because my hip keeps collapsing or my ankle can't support that force coming down. Then after practice, I move right into strengthening it. I target my ankle and my hip and I'm working on mobility and I'm working on stability and then force generation through those two areas. And I work on it and I do more drills and I work on it and I do more drills. And within two to three weeks, like Dr. Doug said, I agree with that timeline. You are going to have your skill and your actual functional chain there improves simultaneously. And now that drill is going to be doable on both sides of your body. And butt kicks. If you're spending a ton of time on the ground in butt kicks, it's probably your ankles. Hmm. You probably have a really hard time getting balance or you don't have stability or whatever it is. And you spend time focusing you know, six inches up from your ankles and then all the way down to your toes on strengthening and mobility and stability through there while working on that drill. And you just keep progressing up through the drills. Again, if you Google these running drills, you're going to have 20 different things to do. You start with the most basic and move up, but I don't believe you have to do these. You could go right to doing all my normal running and just watching in a mirror or recording myself and trying to fix it. And it can work. But if we wanted to treat this like an injury, which it kind of is, it's a, it's a nerve injury. It's a biomechanical injury. It's a stride injury. You fix that with rehab. So I would go straight to the rehab, which is drill and strengthen, drill and strengthen. Now there are, there's running work we can do on top of that, but I think that's where I would start. Uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. I'm glad you broke that down. See what I was really getting at here. And I don't mean to try to, you know, poke at your, your suggestions is I, and I mean this myself included, like so many people are so out of touch with, they, they're hopping and they're all over the place. They don't realize what's happening. They don't know if it's their hip or their knee or their ankle. They're like, wow, I'm so unstable. Like they're not as in tune to, let's say a professional athlete Bracken Cracker is with the fact that their hip is dropping when they, <laughs> when, when they hop, right? Video. Correct. So point I'm getting at is like videoing is a must because yeah, I don't think you're going to understand in some of yep. these things, what's actually where, where in the chain is is going wrong. And so I just think like myself included, if I hop enough to point of fatigue, I may not be able to tell what's giving first. And so I think video, because we're, we're, we're just assuming like, Hey, Oh, it's obvious that my ankle, I have ankle instability. Like clearly I think most people are going to be clueless Mm -hmm. and, and even us as athletes might need some video proof for a second. eye to be like, well, yeah, your knees caved in on you and then you hopped left and hopped right to overcompensate like it obviously you're so you get what i'm getting at is that gotcha I, I my concern is like yeah okay if you already have a diagnosis somebody says this is your problem sure but actually being able to suss that out yourself i think is a whole nother story and that's what i was getting at yeah okay that's fair i like that reframing yeah. and, and that's why i say we start at the lowest hanging fruit of movement, which might be jogging in place or butt kicks or, or it's why I really like jump roping because jump roping has very little movement to your lower body. All you're doing is landing on the ball of your foot and getting off the ground one inch or a half inch as you're swinging a rope underneath it. You don't even have to jump rope if you don't want. You can just stand there and hop left foot and right foot. And so you're not lifting your knees up. You're not trying to engage hip mobility. There's no hip angle that needs to be created. It's just getting off the ground. And if you just can do it even in looking in the mirror while doing it, you can feel it. Mm-hmm. 
If everyone just paused this right now and jumped 30 times on their left foot and 30 times on their right, just half inch off the ground over and over, you would feel, okay, I, I can see what he's talking about. I don't have to get confused anywhere else in my chain because I'm really only using one little area, but man, my left side is weak. And if you're looking in the mirror, you can see, even though I'm only supposed to be using my ankles and calves, my left hip moves outwards every time I land like two inches to the left and my right doesn't. What's going on there? It, it announces itself very easily. Now, yes, if you're doing bounding right away or C-skips or something more advanced, it will confuse things. But I think if you start with the simplest movements of all the drills you can find, which to me, again, is jump roping two foot jump roping and then trying left foot and then right foot you start working your way up the chain once you've addressed your ankles then you move to something where your knees have to bend and then you move to something where your hips have to extend and isolate and everything announces itself in order does that make sense yeah it makes sense it's like um just making sure you're able to feel and or see it so you know what you're addressing is sort of the key without a watchful eye yeah yeah so and I was just going to readdress one thing you said earlier, which is you don't need to work on this at the beginning on your slow work. This is where the drills help because everything has to be pretty quick off the ground. If you're trying to jog off the ground, you're spending a ton of time on the ground. And it's not even comfortable. But the other thing to keep in mind is if you need to keep running easy throughout this time in order to keep your training going, run uphill. I've yet to meet someone who can overstride uphill. It's true. I just don't think it's really possible. So it maybe isn't working on the form you're going to use in a 5K road race, but it's starting to get yourself out of the habit of overstriding while you're doing all your other work. You can run 100 miles per week uphill and not take a single overstriding step. So that's kind of always your great safety net is when in doubt, run uphill until things are fixed. Mm. I do like that suggestion. I was... um. Unless you had more to add to those, like the drills, landing underfoot. No, I'm good here. That I have a feeling that most of the people listening right now are probably out for a run. They're actually probably out running as we speak, as they listen. Mm -hmm. And trying to give them something to think about right now, as in this moment, cues to think about while they're actually running. Hey, they're doing it right now. You might as well start playing around with this stuff as you're out hitting your recovery run or you're out for a hopeful threshold. I don't know. 100%. So... I think we we try to throw some some uh, cues at our listeners in the moment. A little bit of a guided run section of the episode, so to speak. Ooh. What do you think? Well, Dr. Doug was 100% right when he said, I have five or six different versions of every cue because you never know how it's going to hit for someone. You never know which thing's going to stick. And I think that's totally right. The same concept of land with your feet underneath you can be applied to 10 different runners in 10 different ways, and it won't stick to every single one of them. For example, there was there's an athlete I work with who just said, my cue I realized is I have to think of my launch point. Like it's a force plate in the ground, and every time I stride, where is my launch point? Am I launching myself from a stable place or not? Which basically is, is my foot landing underneath me in a way that I can push off forward like I'm kicking on a scooter? Is my launch point working or not? Where am I launching from? If his heel's out in front, he can't launch. Mm. He's breaking, gathering, and then propelling. And so that works for him. That's not mine. Mine is return my foot to the ground as fast as possible underneath me. That works for me. Just returning my foot to the ground underneath me. If that happens, the rest falls into place. For other people, that doesn't work. It's heel-based. Mine's forefoot-based. Sometimes it can be heel, but I have to work on, like, almost thinking like I'm drumming. <laughs> I need to think about drumming my feet back to the ground. Tap, 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 tap. Where other people have to think about getting their heels up off the ground. Mine's returning to the ground. So everyone's cue is going to be totally different. And so you're right. We should go through as many cues as we have ever seen work for people. Well, it's interesting you think about like uh, the contact point with the ground, because for me, I feel efficient. I can feel like Forward momentum wants to keep going forward, which means I'm not causing any braking effect. I don't feel anything when my foot lands on the ground other than a quick like contact and off contact. I feel no rolling from my heel to my toe. I feel no I feel no transition like, oh, I hit midfoot but then rolled to my forefoot. It's more like a slap, slap, slap. It's just like a quick like a horse prancing, how their foot almost just hits the ground and comes right off. I feel no foot cycle in my contact with the ground all i feel is one quick bam 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 it's not mm -hmm. like i can 
roll through it or be like, oh, my foot hit here and then came through this little mini process and pushed off. There's none of that. It's just like a pogo stick hitting the ground, boing, boing, boing. There's nothing pushing back against me. So that's one of my cues is like, do I feel like I'm flat on the ground and rolling through my foot? And I'm not a forefoot striker. I'm a midfoot striker. Um, But nonetheless, that's my cue. It's just like, I shouldn't feel anything but that quick bang, ping, ping, ping. I don't know about you, but I cannot feel a, a foot roll through process whatsoever when I'm running efficiently. When I'm running, the worse I'm running, the more I notice each part touching the ground. Correct. In the same way. When I'm running well, I'm off the ground almost before you realize it happened. Exactly. And so my cue, other than thinking about returning my feet to the ground, is I have to always think lean into it. My my upper body leads the way. I'm either, it, it feels like I'm either shying away from the race or the run, or I'm leaning into it. Now, it doesn't mean like he said, hinging at, I'm not talking about hinging. I'm talking about which way am I even facing? Do I look like someone who's attacking into this or someone who's shying away? That key to me is all I need. Some that his, his ski jumper, uh, cue, I think is fantastic because it addresses the angle at which you should approach it. But for me, it's lean into it. For other people, it's stand like a ski jumper. For other people, it's your your rope pulling you from your sternum forward. It's But mine is, I need to lean into it and I need to get my feet back to the ground. There's no dilly-dally in my stride. I have to get them back to the ground. If we're talking over striding, which just seems to be what we're honing in on, which I think is by far the first thing that Dr. Doug mm-hmm. looks at, so that's why we're honing on it. A lot of this comes back to that. What running is is a controlled fall when done correctly, meaning you're literally at the angle in which you're running if you didn't put your feet back out in front of you, you'd actually fall on your face because your own mass is pulling you forward thanks to gravity. doesn't feel like it's your friend, but it actually is, believe it or not, when it comes to running. And so if, then the asterisk is if overstriding is your problem, a forward lean is going to help your feet hit under center of mass. They're just keeping you from falling on your face. And that sounds silly, but not only is that efficient, it's very effective and and uh good at let's say energy management like if all you're doing you don't have to generate as much force if your body weight is doing it for you so that slight forward lean driving forward with purpose is the most energy efficient way to run and the most mechanically efficient way to run most good runners you don't see very many run upright like a soldier with these really high choppy knees you see a slight leaning into the effort if you were to watch like your next track race on youtube people who are running at speed a 5k Almost all of them, there's very few who run super upright. Maybe like a Nico Young would be one of the exceptions or not even a... Con- maybe Grant Fisher. Maybe Grant Fisher would be a, an exception. But you look at like a Woody Kincaid, you look at anybody who really... Kai Robinson who just won back-to-back national titles. All those guys, just just a slight forward lean. Just a slight. It's pulling them forward. And so I agree with you. I know I talk about the string out of the chest analogy once in a while, like... Think about a string pulling you from your chest. Well, that's because I have an, a tendency to lean way too far forward and get it ter- internal when I'm tired. But for the most of you, a lot of you tend running like you're getting like a strong headwinds blowing at you and you run too upright and start overstriding. So that may not be your cue. So much like Bracken says, more common, I think, is the lean into it. Lean into it and at least you know you won't be causing yourself the yeah. breaking effect. Yeah, I really like his, I, I'll say it again, his skateboard or scooter analogy. So picture yourself on a scooter. You're standing straight upright and you have to get this thing moving forward. If you are upright or reaching at all forward, how do you propel yourself forward? You have to press your foot into the ground and you have to just tense your rear chain. Your hamstrings have to curl and you have to pull and it's going to be kind of an uncomfortable yank backwards. But if you lean forward a little bit, Now you get to push your power muscles, glutes and quads, down into the ground and backwards. And that's a clear example of force generation. And while we're running, the same thing is happening to a lesser degree. If we're upright and landing at all in front of us, we have to pull backwards a bit. And if you lean a little bit forward, now you're in that like I'm standing up in a bike and I get to pedal down and backwards. It's a much more sustainable and powerful motion and you have to use less of your quad to propel yourself than you would your hamstring to pull yourself and it's not exactly the same as a scooter or or a skateboard because of the rolling and resistance and whatnot but it's that concept like moving a treadmill would you want to stand upright and pull from in front of you or do you want to get it moving and then just keep kicking it down and backwards 
Yeah, I think a lot of people that are working on their form or newer runners think it's about thinking about what their legs are doing in front of their body when really almost all force production has to do with what your legs are doing behind your body and underneath it. It has very little to do with the forward part of your gait. It has everything due from your contact point with the ground and then through the back kick. And so I agree with you, like driving down and back is where the power is generated. It has very little to do, I hate to say it, with your knee drive or where your your swing cycle is in front. It's from that contact point back. What do you everybody focuses on what my feet are doing in front of my body, not behind it. And that's a very good point. The push and the follow through. Um, and another note about your leaning forward, um, the leaning forward conversation is if you're videotaping yourself, it's very easy to feel like you're leaning forward and then you look at yourself. And your legs are perfectly upright, and then you're just hinged at the hips, like Bracken said, forward. Like there's like an op, you're like running in a slight V where your upper body's forward, but your whole body isn't leaning forward, as my hands outline like this. That's a little dramatic uh, for anybody watching. Um, a slight lean forward. You don't want to be breaking at the hips to lean forward and just sticking your chest forward. It's like a total body angle from the ground forward, right. describing the ski jumper. So. Make sure you know what it feels like to do that. So have video on it. Because a lot of times if you're starting this, you're going to be really broken at the hips and still think you're leaning forward appropriately. But really, you're almost just slouching forward. And that's very different. That's not going to help you generate any more power than a total body ski jump lean. Well, and that's why I think a lot of people run vertically because they think about knee drive. And if I said lift your knees up as high as you could, the first thing you're going to do is move your shoulders and head backwards. Because it's going to open up space for your hip to move upwards. Now, if I said... Hinge from the hip, lean forward, and drive your knee as high as possible. You realize I've just closed off that ability to lift my knee up. I think it should be drive your knee forward as much as possible, which is very different. Because how would you drive it forward? It'd be with a lean versus high. Continue, though. Right. And so the, the, the ski jumper lean imagery allows you to get your feet underneath your mass in a place where I can propel the scooter forward, but I also have him pinched off my ability to lift my knee and rotate my my hip or that that femur in the socket of my hip my rib cage isn't getting in the way i'm not closing it off i'm still up out i can expand my diaphragm i can lift my knee i can kick my leg forward and i haven't leaned way forward to close that angle off yeah that's very that's exactly how i feel about it um okay so just looking at the time here trying to make sure we spew whatever comes to mind at our listening audience what other cues do you have other than these that we focus on the forward lean which we've been i think is worth spending a lot of time on but what other ones do you have well some people run well when they think about running on hot coals Mm. as long as you pair it with the lean again if you're going to be on hot coals you kind of like lift your shoulders up you lift your arms up and you just tap 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 what if we wanted to run fast through hot coals If I had to keep a forward lean, but now it's hot coals, it's getting off the ground quickly. It's really hard to have bad power generation if you have that bit of a forward angle. It's really easy to have bad power generation if you're upright or or backwards a little bit in your verticality. So as long as you have a bit of a forward lean, you're going to be pushing down and back. And then thinking about high cadence starts to matter again. If you think about how quick can I get on and off the ground while like having like the quietest foot strike, that kind of matters again now. How lightly can I hit the ground? Because I'm still going to be generating force. If you think about that scooter analogy, it's not about how hard can I slap my feet into the ground. It's about how perfectly can I join the bottom of my shoe to the ground so that it gets full grip and contact and slams my momentum forward without having any jarring impact. Because the jarring impact will slow the scooter. So now we actually do better with a gentler foot strike than a hard foot strike because if we're gentle we can put the power right into the ground and if we slap we kind of reverberate for a second before we go through does that make sense yeah i think so so a a place my mind just went which is probably a whole side conversation is translating to mixed terrain but i think we should probably save say that a lot of our listeners are trail Mm -hmm. runners and ups and down you know ascending descending technicality maybe we leave that we leave that out of the equation, but I was trying to visualize some of these things for like our trail runners, and I think it gets a little more sticky, but I suppose the same principles apply Yeah, ish. I think so. I have two cues that matter for me. Now, the forward lean is a tricky one because when you think lean, you just think hinge, and I know we've been over it a bunch, but it doesn't change the fact that it's a common, common issue. And so when you think about the skiers forward, if you think about their butts, what do their butts look like? 
are they arching their back like a fitness model taking a selfie or is their butt squeezed and tucked underneath them in a hollow body hold it's squeezed and tucked underneath them because it's aerodynamically compliant Mm -hmm. and that's how we need to be if you squeeze and tuck your butt underneath you while you're leaning you're more likely not to hinge if you just throw that booty out behind you you're probably just leaning forward and when you have that tilt to your pelvis you actually limit your ability to raise your knees up and drive them and get good opening in your stride anyway. So you want your hips tucked underneath you a little bit. You don't want to be rounded back, but you don't want to be, you know, Instagram modeling while you're running. Your job's not to make your butt look good while you're running. <laughs> it's to have it engaged in your stride. It reminds me of the the real crass thing in Without Limits where Bill Bowerman calls Prefontaine mm-hmm. over and he goes, Pre, come over here. And he runs over and he says, you always run with your butt sticking out like that? And then he, he makes a sexual reference, tells him to tough it, tuck his hips up under him. Under him to run more efficiently, not fight mm-hmm. your own body's mechanics. As if he's thrusting forward. <laughs> we'll leave it there. Correct. Yes, and it just reminds me of that because I watched that yeah. movie in high school and I always like holding my breath during that scene. I was like, <gasps> Did Bowerman really say that to Steve Prefontaine? Probably yeah. not. That was a Disney movie. Did you know Inappropriate. That? Inappropriate. Anyways, reminds me of I that. I did not know that was Reminds Disney. me of that scene. All right. So anyway, when I'm running, when I get lazy, my butt starts to stick out. My lower back starts to arch. And I know now I'm leaning into it for the sake of leaning. I'm not doing it with purpose. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that cues me, and I found that I, I, I mentioned during the podcast, I don't hear you talk about arms at all. And he kind of is like, yeah, I don't, because in all of these order of magnitude, it's the least important. It matters. You shouldn't be crossing center line a ton. But how you're driving your arms really matters just to how it's comfortable and efficient for you. And I agree with that. There's so many different styles of arm running, but there's one for everyone that the cue tightens up the rest of their stride and i know what it is for me for me i have to be removing i have to be moving my and i talk about drumming again i have to get my bottom of my hands back down towards my hips as quickly as possible my tendency is to kind of swing and cycle my arms a little bit in the air and it slows my stride down Mm. but if i'm thinking about returning them back down to my hips each time it gives me a little bit of a lower arm carriage which maybe isn't great but it in turn allows me to lean into my stride a little bit and return my feet to the ground there's no scientific connection between that but it's my one cue if i'm drumming up front if i'm just drumming when you're drumming you're not concerned about getting your your sticks off of the drum you're concerned about returning them back down to the drum and what he talked about was drive your elbows backwards well that cue doesn't work for me it works for a lot of people drive your elbows back you're doing it with purpose It doesn't work for me. Whatever reason, it makes me awkward when I run. But if I'm driving my hands back down, can't really drive them down without your elbows returning backwards. And so for me, it fatigues my arms less if I think about my hands returning down to the drum. It's just my thing. I don't know why. Other people, it's, yeah, drive those elbows back or drive your triceps back or whatever it is. Uh, Hip pocket to rear pocket. It doesn't really matter what your cue is, but my cue is return my hands back down. Quick, get my hands back down. Don't flail them around up here. Finding out with my different type of arm swings, what is my cue that cleans up the rest of my stride rather than gets in the way of the rest of my stride? Mm. I've been told more than once that I run with my arms, which is interesting. Um, That cue, when Mm. I'm starting to run fast, I've been told I run with my arms. And I thought about it. That's a middle distance thing, right? Yeah, and I thought about it. And when when I try to run with my, when I try to pick up the pace or I'm like, all right, I'm going to run fast and efficient. I do it. I move my arms and let the legs follow. It's actually a cue for me. Like start moving those babies with purpose and everything else is going to follow. And it cleans me up. And so it's funny to think about moving your yeah. arms in order to make your legs go more efficiently. But I think when people see that they're right, I'm letting my arms almost guide the cadence of my legs versus the legs guiding the cadence of my arms the arms go, my legs follow. And maybe I'm I'm unique there, but I think there is power to that. Just returning through the arms so it can cycle faster, forcing that increases my efficiency, which is kind of interesting to think about because I don't think most people even acknowledge what their arms are doing while they're running, but it's a conscious process for me. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying I'm the most efficient person in the world, but... Well, as middle distance runners, we're taught 
to ramp up our stride at the end with our arms. Right. Go to the arms at the end of your race. They drive power like a sprinter does. And so we almost have two different strides. And what I find that when I drive my arms back, my, my, my elbows back, it leads to too much upper body engagement. I'm using too many of the muscle groups to do it. But when I drive my hands down, I get the same action without changing stride, if that makes sense. Now, other people are going to have the exact opposite reaction, but finding that little cue for you, which means on the trails, on the road, play around with it. Think about your hands for a little bit. Think about your elbows for a little bit. Think about your knees for a little bit. Think about your heels for a little bit. Think about your feet for a little bit. Think about different areas, and one of those areas is going to be the binding agent for your stride. Hmm. It's a lot to think about. When you start thinking about certain body parts when you run, it always makes me like, I actually don't, you, most of the time we don't think about any of it, right? We're wandering around in podcast land while we go for our recovery mm-hmm. run or we're listening to Miley Cyrus during our tempo efforts, right? We don't think about it. But when we do think about it, I always feel like there's room to improve almost everything. I'm like, yeah, my foot does hit a little weird. What is my elbow doing in my backswing? Like things that we maybe just need to focus on a little more might clue you in. A lot of us ignore it, which of course, sometimes you want to stay as distracted as possible when you're running to just make sure the run gets done and the time goes by. But um, I think we could all do a better job of just being in tune, myself included, with what exactly is happening. And I probably need to go back to the video and yeah, figure it out. I think so. I think that would be something that I should do in one of my upcoming well, sessions. I did. Oh, you did? Okay. Recently? Yeah. When you asked him, like, what do we do? We're old, we're old men, quote unquote, where we used to be faster, or maybe not you, but we got bow-legged and we overstride or whatever. And what would I do? And he, he's like, well, it really, it's going to be unique to both of you. And I think that's right. We have similar characteristics and we run totally differently. But as he said it, I thought, I know exactly what I'm doing wrong. Just listening to him talk. I overstride and I collapse at the hips. Mm-hmm. Easy peasy. That's definitely what I Which do. Which most people do. I think that's the common combination in some regards. Yeah. I'm not knock kneed, but I know that my ankle mobility and my hip strength and balance is not up to par with, let's say, what my quads are capable of doing and what my arms and feet are capable of doing. My ankles and hips are lagging behind. And so I just did the little jump test in the mirror and I have a wrestling mat in my basement which is a little spongy just enough that it's hard to get off it cleanly and it makes you sag a little bit more and I just watched myself I'm like yeah ankles and hips and so I'm gonna make it a point because why not why not as I was even talking about my sister and my dad doing their sports and working on technique I thought it would be dumb for me not to do this of course I'm gonna have to be better at my technique Mm-hmm. I don't need an overhaul, but I need to clean up my mechanics. So I'm going to really focus on my ankles and hips throughout this rebuild here and see what I can do about it. Well, I think your, was it your point during the episode? It could have been his, but I don't want to steal credit from you if it was you saying like you go to soccer practice I gave it to him. and no, I think it was you go to soccer practice. And what do we do? Most of the practice is spent on drills. Maybe we'll scrimmage at the end to put those drills into play. You go to basketball practice, and the entire practice is mostly drills. And then we play with a little bit of scrimmage, maybe just to keep the grease grouped. Every other sport. Why do people go to batting practice to practice mechanics? Why do every, literally every sport but running seems to get that sort of attention? And, and there's a reason that top-level pro-tier athletes and teams Focus on the mechanics of what they are doing so they can do it better. And then as runners, it's okay to just put on your pair of Pegasus with 800 miles on them already and go slog through a junky-looking run and wondering why your 5K isn't getting better. It's ridiculous. It really is. And so we could right. take lessons from other sports as much as anything. And I think that was you who said that, not him. I think he did the practice part. That was, was whatever About scrimmaging and whatnot. Take. But that brings me to what... To my final point. Yeah, let's wrap this thing up. Which is, all of this is well and good, but it's skill work. It's drill work. When we finally use it, it has to be paired to race stride. And so we've got to do our fast running. We've got to do our perfect bounding and all of that. But this must be practiced at the intended stride you will use in the race. And this is where this aligns with all of our other episodes, which is the bulk of your quality work needs to be within one or two standard deviations pace-wise of your goal race pace or effort, because otherwise you're practicing something you're not going to use. Your sprint form is going to look beautiful. Your bounding is going to look beautiful. Your easy runs might even look pretty beautiful. And then you get to, let's say, 10K pace. And you're still collapsing at the hip a little bit because you haven't worked on it in that form as much. And so you need to do that. 
you need to make sure that I'm upfront going to spend a lot of my quality work in the stride I intend to use later. And every step of it, I'm going to try to make perfect. And that might mean, let's say we're working on 10K pace, changing from 10 by 1,000 to, I don't know, 30 by 400 or 25 by 400. Making the intervals shorter so that you don't miss a rep. Mm -hmm. If you sit at the free throw line and you shoot one shot, step off the line, come back, one shot, step off the line, come back, you can control everyone as you want it to. If you sit there and you've got the jugs machine in front of you or the, the pop a shot in front of you and it's just firing at you and you just catch, shoot, catch, shoot, catch, shoot, you're going to have a lot of crappy reps start to sneak into there because you're trying to get it all done at once in one big bout. You have to back away. And so moving it down to 400 meter repeats at 10K pace, you're going to have to do a lot of them, but everyone can be immaculate. And you're not spending so much time running that things start to slip. You can focus for that entire 80 or 90 seconds and then stop, refocus, do a couple stride drills, and then start it up again. And you just recenter every single time. That's the way to pair it to your race pace early on. And to those of you who think this sounds like a lot of work, it is at first. It's a lot of mental energy. It's a lot of paying attention. A lot of times we run to let our minds just go free and not have to think. Well, that's not really the case when you're working on changing or improving your stride. There's going to be some upfront commitment, like on the attention front. And it's going to be a little bit annoying. You might not be able to jam out to your music the same or whatever you do when you run. But just like anything, as it comes around, it becomes innate. And then you do very little to no thinking about it. It's just that first two to three weeks, as Bracken yes. said, Dr. Doug said, you got to really be on it, put in a focused period of time, and then it becomes second nature, like brushing your teeth or whatever comes naturally to you without much thought. It's the same thing. It's just like up front, you got to put in an investment, and then it will pay dividends in the future without nearly the mental effort. So just like keep that in mind. This isn't an eternal thing you're going to have to do. It's an upfront investment. Um, we got to wrap this up. Mostly because I need to eat lunch and then get out of here. Um, I'm sure we left lots on the table. But are you cool with, with putting a bow? Yeah. The bow tie has been put on it. Are we good? We good to we good to cut it? You got anything else? You're usually good for wedging. Oh, you know what? Yeah, you're usually good for wedging one more thing in there. So, yeah. Yeah. I should have included one last thing. The same way of approaching 10K pace, you can do that on your easy runs to make sure you're not slogging. Instead of a 50-minute easy run, go 10 by 5 minutes easy with... 15 second rest in between just to double down on all right am i running well all right all right back to it 10 a skips back to running it doesn't change your workout but it makes sure you don't slog so easy runs can be intervals as well early on boom good what wedged it in there i won't say another word figured you had something all right guys we'll see you later this week got a good interview coming for you till next time (laughs) 